to our latest edition of Shoe Speak HR. Um, I am delighted to be joined by Jennifer Wright, uh, who is a principal associate in our Glasgow team. Hi, Jen. Hi. Uh, and also Jonathan Naylor, who you have all heard from before, um, but we are delighted that he's coming back on um, to Shoe Speak HR. So Jonathan is the, by way of reminder, a partner and, and head of our Thames Valley office. Hi, Jonathan. Good morning to you, Andy. So today, what we're going to look at, well, we're going to look and discuss uh, for the benefit of our listeners, how to stay on the right side of the fence uh, when it comes to collective bargaining. Um, Section 145B of Tulkra, I don't envisage that we are going to get too technical because we do want you to keep listening. but there's been a lot going on in this space um, in the news. If you if you look at the rail strikes, for example, uh, the government's proposal to remove the restriction on employers using agency workers um, to carry out the duties of those striking employees, uh, and increasing damages limits for the unions arranging unlawful strike action. Um, so it is topical, uh, and we have also had uh, an employment appeal tribunal decision. Um, so that's the latest word, I guess, in, in a theme of cases involving Section 145B, um, the collective consultation obligations and how that impacts upon pay negotiations. So just by way of reminder, I, like I said, I'm not going to get too technical, but what one, one Section 145B of Tulka does is, is it acts as a prohibition on employers making offers direct to employees, um, which undermines that collective bargaining arrangement between um, the employer and, and, and the particular trade union. So, Jen, I am going to ask you to talk us through the case of Ineos. But as I said at the top, you are a new guest to Shoes HR. So unfortunately, I'm not going to let you get away with not answering the question as to what is your favourite podcast that you listen to? Um, in your free time. Free time, what is that? Um, but yes, my um, favourite podcast that I listen to quite a lot is Elizabeth Day's podcast, How to Fail. I don't know if anyone's listened to that. She's a um, an author and journalist and it's a great setup. She has a different guest on every couple of um, weeks talking about their kind of three failures in their life and what they've learned from them. It sounds really bleak as a kind of parameter, but actually there's a lot to be they're really positive positive outcomes to to the stories and a lot to be taken away from it so yeah I really enjoy it I listen to them really regularly she's some cracking guests I mean full spectrum I mean Russell Kane was a recent one um she had Lady Hale um lots of politicians other authors and things so it's a yeah it's very good highly recommend it if you're looking for some um some new listening material I guess nice to always know that human beings do make the odd mistake here and there. So. Do you know, a very, yeah, definitely a very positive, a positive reminder in this world of perfectionism and all that comes with it. So, yeah, that's, that is my favourite. And obviously this one as well, Andy, obviously our I, podcast. I was waiting for that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Jonathan, have you had any changes to your favourite podcast listenings? Yes, well, I, I think it's just, I find myself listening to them more and more. So yeah, the the, the range is getting more varied. And obviously, I'm, I'm glad that Jen finally remembered to to mention the Shoe Speak one as well, because that <laughs> is compulsory. Uh, at, the, at the moment, you might feel that you've had enough of politics, but I was I was really engaged with all the Tory leadership changes that have been going on recently. Um, 
I've been quite engaged with uh, one called The Rest is Politics, which is Alistair Campbell and Rory Stewart just having a chat. Two politicians, well, not politicians, I suppose um, one politician, one advisor, but from different parts of the spectrum and actually just engaging with each other and having a discussion and testing out some ideas. And it was just, a, I thought it was really interesting and engaging because it, they've got a freedom to speak because they're not in frontline politics. They're not fighting for a particular seat or a particular position. So they're able to give those views quite openly and quite, you know, honestly, I think. And they, that was quite engaging to listen to. So, yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that. I like that, Jonathan. And seamlessly, that allows us to to go back to into the collective bargaining where you've got two sides of the table um, trying to to reach a deal. So, Back to the case, Jen. Um, do you want to give us a bit of detail about that? Yeah, absolutely. And a really seamless link there, Andy. Very impressive. Um, so where the case that, that we um, were talking about that was um, published around about the same time as we had the real, biggest real strikes in 30 years happening. So it was a, a very apt decision to be released at that time was um, involved in AS and it concerned their pay negotiations with the recognised trade union Unite. There'd been a really drawn out and protracted negotiation between the management at Aeneas and representatives of Unite. And the negotiations resulted in the union saying, listen, the best we can recommend is 3% pay rise to their membership. And Aeneas responded with a best and final offer of 2.8%. So not that far apart, but both of them saying this is the end of the road for us. Some discussion as to whether a dispute resolution procedure could be invoked to resolve the situation. Um, but despite being effectively very close in numbers, NAS decided that negotiations were done, they're at an end, and imposed the pay award of 2.8% to its employees. What this resulted in is the claimants asserting that NAS had um, done this with the intention of undermining collective bargaining and was in breach of section 145B, which um, trips off the tongue, but is the bit of legislation that Andy mentioned at the outset. The employees raised their action at the Glasgow Employment Tribunal, so nice and local to me, um, which found, found in their favour in the first instance, and then they appealed to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. And the EAT agreed with the Employment Tribunal, and we've gone to have a chat about how they assessed their key reasoning um, and the key question arising from this decision and what's prompted so much discussion is what, what and when is collective bargaining at an end? When, when have we reached the end of the road? And uh, Jonathan, do you anything you want to add to that to develop the point? Yes, thanks, Jen. I, I think, I mean, as we've all said, it, it can appear on the face of it to be a dry topic, this, but it actually it's it's crucially important to all employers that recognise unions and have uh, this issue of collective bargaining because the the implications of getting it wrong can be significant. And as Ineos found out here, without trying to spoil the story too much, but um, the, the issue for them then in respect of this particular uh, point around the collective bargaining was that like a lot of union agreements, there was no doubt there was collective bargaining. It's just that it wasn't terribly clear what that process was. Often, uh, you know, many employers, many unions will be aware that these agreements are not necessarily the best drafted. They're, they're over time, they're added to, little bits are addended, little bits are struck out. And sometimes it's a little unclear as to what the terms of the actual collective process are. And, and that was one of the problems that faced INEOS here, because, of course, when you say the process is unclear, if it's not sufficiently detailed, how does anyone know with confidence when it's been concluded? 
because the only way that the employer gets away with this, making the offer uh, directly to the employees concerned, is if they can say, hand on heart, the collective process has been concluded and everyone's confident of that. So here, the union disputed that. And of course, the employment tribunal and ultimately the EAT also uh, found in favour of the union. They said that the parties had been pretty close together in their respective positions. It was likely that an agreement would ultimately have been achieved. And, and crucially, and I think this highlights the limit of that previous case of Costal, which is one that this case of INEOS builds on. But the crucial point there is that of course, if an employer just said, well, this is our best and final offer, the process is at an end, and we're able to do that, they might do that repeatedly. And they might end up in a position where essentially the collective agreement was being undermined at every turn. So understandably, the EAT were reluctant to endorse that sort of approach and said, here, you've got to be absolutely confident that the collective bargaining process is exhausted, is at an end, and employers shouldn't be able to just achieve that purpose by labelling an offer a final one when perhaps it's not. Um, we've got a situation developing in Northern Ireland on similar lines here. The employer Caterpillar there has made a what it describes as a take it or leave it offer to the workforce directly over the heads of the union. The union have raised exactly the same point as was raised in INEOS and said this is a breach of the collective bargaining arrangements. We'll have to see how that one develops. But um, that was the nub of the issue in INEOS. Um, Andy, what, what other considerations do you think might apply with this, this line of cases? Yeah, I think what businesses shouldn't forget in any of these kind of cases, if, if you find yourself in tribunal, um, then effectively there is a disclosure exercise. Um, you know, like there is for conventional employment tribunal claims where the parties have to disclose all the relevant documents, and that can include emails, um, can include notes of conversation, minutes and everything else, um, you know, kind of whereby that are obviously related to the collective bargaining. Now, what is the risk? Well, in the INEOS case, um, the, the real challenge for them um, was that the Employment Appeal Tribunal looked um, to ask if, if the, um, the offer that they had put forward um, had achieved the forbidden result of undermining collective bargaining. Um, I, and one of the factors that was, was pretty fatal to their defence was that prior to imposing the pay award, um, management sent an email that, that read, the only logical conclusion is that we have to engineer a way to get rid of Unite and replace them with a different representative. Um, so in the cold light of tribunal, you can imagine that that doesn't go down well. Um, so it, not only does it clearly not assist in, in their defence, you, you also need to have a slight leap forward as well to say, well, hang on, how is this going to impact on relations going forward um, if if Unite do stay stay in? Because you know, kind of people will have long long memories as to how they've been treated. Um, so that's never going to be helpful in terms of employee relations going forward. But within that, so the the communication that Ineos sent to the workforce um, it, within that communication, uh, it also said that it was terminating the collective bargaining arrangement. Um, so I, I think it was um, Council for Unite that that specifically said it, it doesn't take a quantum leap to conclude that the intention of imposing the pay award was was to undermine collective bargaining. Um, so that was the 
the challenge or certainly one of the, the real fatal points for Ineos. Um, is there any other lessons, Jen, that, that we can learn from that decision? Well, I'd say first and foremost, be very careful what you commit to writing in an email. I've been in plenty of these disclosure exercises where your heart sinks as you see that email that, um, as you say, doesn't take a quantum leap to absolutely sink your case. So um, that being a major takeaway. Um, a number of other things I think come out from this. I think firstly, and Jonathan's picked up on it, the difficulties that arise if your collective bargaining agreement isn't, isn't clear or isn't nicely set out. Um, and I think a lot of time and energy can be saved by having a collective bargaining agreement that is clear and unambiguous with any trade union that an employer recognises. Um, both Costal and Ineos made it clear that it will be much easier to identify when collective bargaining is at an end, when an agreement exists with a clear process and that process has been followed. So do we have something set out nicely that we can say has been followed through from start to finish so that we can comfortably say, yep, collective bargaining is now at an end? I think so often collective bargaining agreements, when I see them, aren't fit for purpose either because they were drafted decades ago. I've seen plenty that were drafted before I even started school um, and are so longer fit for purpose at all. Um, or they've been lost, um, you know, where employers have inherited collective bargaining, perhaps from via two pay transfers and they've been passed down the line and you get to a stage and there's no no clarity as to what was in the agreement. I think where an employer does recognise a union, it can save a lot of hassle if the rules of playing collective bargaining are spelled out and if there's dubiety trying to get something written down and I do appreciate that's so much easier said than done especially when we're in this territory of employers probably having more challenging pay negotiations with their unions than usual but I think one of the key differences between Costal and NAS was that Costal had a clear and unambiguous collective bargaining process that could be seen to be clearly at an end. And when we don't have that, we could end up in the NAS type situations with a, well, are we at an end or are we not? And what do we need to do further from here in order to be able to make a pay award? I think secondly, where there's a collective bargaining um, agreement in place, make sure that it's followed and that those who are involved in union negotiations are aware of it and aware of its content, I think a lot of pain can be saved by going through the motions that are in an agreement and it can save employers finding themselves in the same situation as NAS. And I think it's quite common for employers and um, unions to be going through collective bargaining at the moment and getting to the end of the road and not having reached agreement. So employers may find themselves more commonly in situations like this where they're saying, well, we can't get agreement with the union. We're probably going to have to think about imposing this pay award. Can we do so safely? And I think by making sure you've checked the boxes with your collective bargaining process, it can save an awful lot of pain, um, particularly when NAS have been found to be on the hook for several thousands of pounds per employee, which gets costly, especially for employers dealing with big groups of employees who are covered by their collective bargaining. Jonathan, any particular thoughts that you have on managing union relationships? Yes, thanks, Jen. I think just to, to move it from some of the legal aspects to just that relationship piece, which is which is still absolutely critical. And I, I think, again, it was one of the real problems here for INEOS was that perhaps the manager's views of the issue were skewed a bit by the fact that there was a particular union official that they clearly had historically got to dislike um, because of what was perceived as an obstructive attitude to negotiations and therefore in their uh, dealing with them on this issue, they really didn't want to have to deal with that rep. And so when 
that rep was brought back into the process as the managers perceived it, that was a bit of a breach of faith as far as they were concerned on the part of the union. And it no doubt caused relationships to become even more strained than they were already. So it's absolutely right that, you know, individual relationships are key in these discussions with um, unions. Have a think about whether you've got the right people in place to deal with those particular reps. And bear in mind that as managers, you may not be able to specify to the union who it is that you wish to deal with so therefore on your side maybe you need to put in place the right people with the right personalities to be able to have a productive working relationship at least as much as possible um i think it's interesting just we'll, we'll go on just to close with some sort of broader discussions around this this area but i do think um, it was noticeable that these proposals have come into force so quickly around the use of agency staff, around the use, uh, the increase of damages awards against the unions, a matter of weeks from the first proposal to becoming effective just at the end of last week. And when you compare that with some of the delays that have been in other employment law legislation, I mean, for example, the protection around maternity leave returners having six months uh, a greater protection against redundancy. That was a proposal that was in 2019. It's still not anywhere near in force from the government. So interesting that the political will to put this in place clearly drove a very fast process here. Um, not sure quite how effective it's going to be. I mean, I suspect that they're looking at these strikes in the public sectors, but of course, I'm not sure how any of us would really want an agency staff member driving our train or helping out on a, a sort of urgent hospital appointment. <laughs> I don't know that that would work terribly well, but uh, we shall see how the, what effects this has. But Andy, what what do you think? Anything else on the on this sort of broader point about relationships and general industrial action? Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of managing those relationships, uh, as you've alluded to, Jonathan, they, they are key, you know, kind of that, that human connection, you know, that that applies in any walk of life, you know, kind of people do business with people, don't they? Um, and sometimes that there, there just needs to be a line drawn in the sand, let bygones be bygones. And I know, again, it sounds very much easier said than done. It's that cultural shift as to how we're going to make this work going forwards. And, and often the example I use is, is the no smoking ban that came in years and years ago but ultimately that initially people oh, i'm still going to smoke in a bar i'm still going to smoke in a restaurant i'm still going to smoke in the office this isn't going to change anything for me now that cultural shift happened fairly quick um to the extent that it, it it's self-police now if, if somebody lights up in a bar or a restaurant then the general public are furious and and they they will probably correct it before anybody from the management of, of the organization has to. Um, so I'm not saying it's necessarily that simple, but it's a case of that cultural shift. How, how can we work together better going forward? Because it's in nobody's interest for the organization to not do well. And, and sometimes that's lost. Ultimately, when you take that step back and you have that you know, kind of considered thought uh, process, both sides, trade union and employer, then, then actually... That, that common goal should should be worked towards. So um, if, if that can be achieved, and, and like I say, ultimately, let's say, let's draw a line in the sand and let's build this relationship going forwards um, wherever possible. Interesting point you raise as well, Jonathan, in terms of the, um, you know, the, the new legislation coming in um, in respect of allowing temporary businesses or employment businesses to provide uh, skilled temporary agency staff um, at short notice. Um, I, like you, I, I'm a tad concerned as to how effective 
that is going to be in practice you know kind of lots of organizations lots of industries are struggling from a resourcing perspective full stop and those agencies are already out there unable to provide staff but you know kind of currently unable to because they they have a shortage um so in, in times of strike especially when it's a, a skilled particular individual then then that will be a challenge um but this this law will apply across all sectors um and, and is you know ultimately designed to to minimize the impact of strike so we shall see um without our crystal balls um we can't say with any certainty but i i suspect i speak for us all when i when i look at it through a lens of an element of cynicism as to kind of is this just a populist policy being brought in um at a time to try and demonstrate that the government is doing all it can um to to stop this strike action um anything else from from jen jonathan before we wrap up no as as ever um you know we would always be interested to hear from our listeners as to what their views are what their experiences are feel free to get in touch the usual way shoespeak hr at shoesmiths.co.uk um but in the meantime uh, enjoy the rest of your week um thanks to both jen and jonathan and hopefully jen certainly for you we haven't scared you off and you'll be back uh, on the podcast soon can't wait cannot wait thanks all thanks andy thanks very much andy